Well, I've got a lot to say, but I don't want to say what I want to say. I want to say whatever anybody is interested in. That's what I want to do. Well, that's fair enough, but how yeah. about we start with what you want to say? Because here's my question. Yeah. How old okay. are you? Uh, 75. I'll be 76 on April the 5th, which is March, April, next month. Right. I'm an Aries, like Hitler. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really nice way to start. Uh, I'm an Aries like Hitler. All right, I know this is a gimme, but I, I, I want to hear this. You could be home with your grandkids. You could be resting a lot more. You could have said, I did my job. Why are you still working? Because I like it. Uh, and I'm too poor to retire. Uh, Got to keep working. And uh, my main income now is uh, doing what I'm doing now, basically uh, doing uh, lectures and uh, uh, talking to students. And I would do it whether I got paid or not, but I do need to get paid. Yeah. And uh, just on that question, I was just reading uh, something by Alice Walker. And she uh, was musing one day with herself, and she said, I wonder what would have happened if Dr. King uh, in... Uh, um, January or February of 1968 would have said, I'm done. My leadership is over. I'm going to the farm and raise some chickens and, and cultivate some flowers. What would have happened? Uh, well, what would have happened? What would have happened if Bob Zollner had said, I'm done? Well, first of all, Dr. King probably would have been unable to do it. And she also said the same thing about uh, Malcolm X. What if before uh, he mounted that stage uh, where he ended his life. He had said, my leadership is done, somebody else take over, and uh, I want to go and uh, raise some chickens and cultivate some flowers. Uh, but what, ha what keeps us going as an elder is, uh, and I, I think I qualify as an elder now, <laughs> is passing it on. That's, what, that's our job now to do that. But I'm very lucky because I can <clears throat> still do some grassroots organizing and I can pull together what happened 55 or 60 years ago and today. All right, do me a favor. Everybody always defines in interviews or, in, you know, they, he did this, he did that. Say who you are and what you view your accomplishments. What's your biography? Uh, what's my biography? Say oh, my name is Bob, oh, my name is Bob Zellner. Z-E-L-L-N-E-R, and I'm one of the famous, most famous people that you've never heard of. <laughs> and that's what I find today. I, I, I keep looking on the internet and so forth, and I see people who are immensely famous and have done all kinds of incredible stuff, and I never heard of them either. <laughs> so it happens a lot. Uh, I know that when I teach my university classes, uh, and I, I tell people that I knew uh, Dr. King and I was in jail with Dr. King and I knew Mrs. Rosa Parks and that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about me in her last book. Uh, they say, did you meet Harriet Tubman or were you able to, <laughs> did, did you speak personally to Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass? And I would say no, but they were in the same movement. So uh, this is what this is about, uh, this pilgrimage and uh, what this incredible, uh, endeavor is here and it's about uh, touching the past and bringing it forward uh, paying it forward and doing uh, doing the do that's what it's about you know speaking of touching for just a minute mm -hmm. 
what we ex have been experiencing, the lows, I think you all were talking about, Mississippi being the lows. Uh, is that familiar territory in the movement? The blues, you mean? Yeah. Or the uh, lows? You know what? Yes, the blues. The blues, <laughs> yes. Um, the way we, people have been feeling about the reaction to the crimes we have come to bear witness to. That's yes. hard to go through. Uh, it is hard to go through, but the blues are, are about sadness, but they're also about joy. And um, what I'm trying to teach, I teach teachers a lot. And, uh, you know, when something is already intense, you don't need to make it any more in intense. You need to lighten up a little bit, and that's what the blues is about. That's what the dozens are about. That's what, uh, that's what our, uh, you know, our evenings were about in those days. And we joked a lot. Yeah? Yeah. What kind of jokes? <laughs> Practical jokes, all kinds of things. <laughs> Wait, you and, and Dr. King would, would do some practical joke on Andrew Young? <laughs> uh, well, they were a little older, and they were very, uh, they were very conservative in their jokes, but uh, we were a little younger. I remember one time, uh, and I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, uh, we were in a, a brutal prison in, for quite a few, quite a long time in Kilby Prison in uh, Alabama. Uh, well, we had uh, a postman named William Moore had been murdered. Uh, James Meredith undertook a solitary march and he was shot. And James uh, and William Moore, an uh, atheist, took, undertook a solitary march from Chattanooga to Jackson, Mississippi. And he was shot and killed. So when, when that happened, uh, about six or eight people from SNCC and six or eight people from CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, took up his march. And when we got to the Alabama line, uh, we were met by Al Lingo, who was the Klansman that was appointed to be the head of the Highway Patrol by George Wallace. And we were brutally cattle prodded, and thousands of people lined the streets, the roads, uh, kill them, kill them, kill them. And uh, a vicious, vicious situation. People have asked me since then, What's it like to be cattle prodded? I don't remember. I was, I was cattle prodded and I have no memory of it whatsoever. Burned by electrical burns. And, uh, but anyway, uh, we were in this really bad prison in uh, uh, Kilby, Kilby Prison. We were on death row. We were right next to where uh, one of the Scottsboro boys was so long on death row in uh, Kilby Prison. But anyway, uh, I'm telling about the joke now. So uh, we were fed muffins. We were fed muffins, uh, cornbread muffins. And uh, they would put glass in the muffins and uh, rocks and stones and so forth. So we barely, we couldn't eat the muffins, but they were so hard. And if you saved them for a few days, they were indestructible. So uh, we've learned a bowling game. We played a bowling game with the muffins and they had a little beveled bottom so they wouldn't roll straight, but they would roll in a curve. So one day we were all standing there and uh, it was unusual because in this prison, we were on, a spe we were on death row and uh, old death row and we were allowed to be together. So we were north and south and white and black and so forth. Not male and female, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, we were all together. So one day, uh, I was pretty good at bowling these muffins. So one day, 
Jesse Morris was standing in the middle of the cell block, and he was meditating. Jesse loved to stand and meditate. And I liked meditating too, but I wasn't meditating at that time, so everybody was watching, and I got my muffin just right, and he was barefoot. We just went barefoot in the cell block. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that we had to guard against every day was huge rats. There were rats the size of cats. And the rats loved these muffins. So we would feed them muffins so they wouldn't be gnawing on our toes at night and heels. But anyway, Jesse was standing in the middle of the cell block. Jesse was a very tall basketball player and uh, tremendously courageous. He, he recently died, and we were, we've been doing his memorial. And it reminded me of this story. But anyway, I got my muffin, and everybody was watching. And I rolled the muffin in a perfect arc, and it went about 30 feet in a perfect arc. And just as it hit Jesse's heel, we all said, rat! And he dunked. Oh. He, he literally went four feet off the ground. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll never forget Jesse's jumping him. But he was a good sport, and uh, he, forgave, he forgave us for that. But that's just one example of that. That's pretty powerful to you to have humor being as much a part of the movement as you're describing because of all the crimes you're dealing with. Well, we, dealt, we, we said that we, we depended on three or four things, prayer, singing, and humor and jokes. And I remember uh, in, even in Macomb, Mississippi, which was extremely brutal, and uh, Herbert Lee had already been murdered just because he went down to register to vote. And uh, the first march there was my first march ever. I was a member of the, I was a brand new member of the SNCC staff. I was about the greenest person there. Uh, but I remember something really funny, and we all laugh about it this, to this day. Hollis Watkins and, and uh, Curtis Hayes and Brenda Travis were experienced uh, young people. They'd been on the Freedom Ride and everything, been in and out of jail. And uh, Hollis and Curtis and Brenda had just gotten out of jail for being arrested at the Trailways bus station for the Freedom Ride. So when this march occurred, nobody knew it was going to occur. They just walked out of school, 135 of them. And uh, anyway, I joined. I was the only white person in the demonstration. But we all laughed because when we got stopped by a huge mob at the town hall, uh, Hollis was at the head of the line, so he stood up on the steps of the uh, town hall, and he lifted up his hand, and he said, Oh, Lord. And the police grabbed him and said, You're under arrest. And he said, Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> So it's two different ways of calling on the Lord. <laughs> he said, oh, my God, here we go again. But, you know, and mayhem was about to break out. They were, they were trying to, uh, they were beating people with baseball bats and pipes and, and they had hangman's ropes. I mean, they literally had hangman's ropes to face these kids with. And uh, yet, and it wasn't that funny at the time, but everybody kind of chuckled. He said, oh, Lord, <laughs> here we go again. But anyway, I diverse. Where was that? Uh, Macomb, Mississippi. And the date was October the 4th, 1961. You know how you always remember the first time you were ever arrested? Right? <laughs> you always remember the date, October the 4th, 1961. You know, um, 
have you ever had a conversation with one of those barbed wire bat wielding people and to the point where you were able to sort of ask them where's the well of hate you keep dropping that bucket into have you ever gotten a satisfactory answer I, I like to talk to them. I like very much to talk to them um, because I think I can. Uh, my daddy was in the Ku Klux Klan. My granddaddy was in the Klan. And when my father left the Ku Klux Klan, his father disowned him, and his brothers never spoke to him again. So I know that side. Uh, and uh, I recently had an experience uh, with uh, Oprah Winfrey. You, you know Oprah. <laughs> and um, I went with her uh, producers down to Alabama. They wanted to talk to some Klansmen. Uh, and I had had the experience of knowing Klansmen. And uh, some of them have uh, changed their, their whole lives. And, uh, in fact, a very famous uh, exchange was recently a Klansman that uh, had beaten John Lewis uh, on the Freedom Ride. And uh, she, uh, they were actually featured on uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey's program when she did this 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. But anyway, I was working with her producers, and they wanted to talk to Sonny Kyle Livingston in Montgomery, Alabama. And Sonny Kyle Livingston was a, a f very famous, uh, vicious murderer, Klansman. And he's an unreconstructed, vicious, murderous Klansman. So when I went with the producers uh, to talk to Sonny Kyle in Montgomery, we took uh, with us a uh, Montgomery policeman who was also on the side of George Wallace and the Klan at one time and has now joined the movement. And he just wanted to go along with us in case. So we're sitting in this little restaurant eating cornbread and fried okra and so forth in uh, Montgomery. And at one point um, in the discussion, uh, the policeman says, uh, well, you know, Sonny Kyle never goes anywhere with, without his pistol. Now, Sonny Kyle, I just have to tell you that I had a relationship with Sonny Kyle when I was a student at Huntington College. And we uh, were uh, asked to leave school because of our civil rights activities. And Sonny Kyle let it be known in Montgomery that he was going to kill me and the other, the other students. So um, he was always, you know, he was supposed to be the, the guy that was going to kill us. So here we are now, 50 years later, sitting in a restaurant in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, the policeman says, Sonny Kyle never goes anywhere without his gun, and Sonny Kyle reaches in his pocket and pulls out a pistol, and I'm sitting as close to him as you right there, and I just had this image of a couple of holes in my chest. And, the, the, well, the punchline is the next day I saw Morris Dees from the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. And he says, Bob Zellner, I hear that you're trying to s talk to Sonny Kyle Livingston. Don't you have anything to do with him? He's still crazy and he will kill you. And I said, well, Morris, I had lunch with him yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> He said, you are one crazy in individual dude. <laughs> but I, be I believe in talking to him. All right, but that's now. What about, what about 50 years ago? Had you had any conversations? Do you remember conversations with some of those same types of people 50 years ago? I mean, not the screaming ones as you're marching, but. 
Oh, yes, I, re I remember uh, 50 years ago. Well, after the SNCC years, when I worked, uh, I was one of the first uh, white Southerners to be a field secretary for SNCC. I went on the staff uh, September the 11th, 1961, which is a significant date, which is exactly 40 years before the buildings were knocked down in New York City. Um, but um, when I went to work with SNCC, uh, I had come out of Huntington College, and uh, a lot of the students at Huntington College were Klan members. They were younger Klan members and so forth. Um, and so some of them over the years have changed. And uh, I remember I got a call from Jim Bishop. Uh, well, I shouldn't use his name, but he's a, he was a former Klansman in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And he called me one day, and he said, uh, I bet you don't know who this is. And I said, Jim Bishop, how are you doing? How's everything in Montgomery? He said, fine. He said, I saw your picture in the New Yorker magazine. And I said, well, Jim, uh, wrong on two counts. Number one, the New Yorker magazine doesn't have pictures. <laughs> and number two, I didn't know that Klansman would read the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> so he said... He said, well, he said, first of all, I ain't no Klansman no more. And he said, I know you were in that church that night when we were trying to burn the church down, and we were burning up the cars and everything. And he said, I want to apologize for that because he said, we were wrong and you were right. He said, Bob, I don't know how you do that then, but you, you were right. And he said, and your picture is in the New Yorker magazine with Julian Bond and your wife Dorothy Zellner. So here are the, all these old Klansmen who were classmates of mine, uh, you know, following what's happening in the Civil Rights Movement and changing. Yeah. But I got to tell you, I've asked you that twice now, and you have not given me an, a, a, oh, a, convers tell me what the answer a, a conversation from when, you, from when it was that era. Was it just too impossible to have conversations? In that era. No, I had, question, I had conversations with them then, knowing that they were Klansmen. Um, in fact, one of my classmates at, at Huntington was named Doc, and uh, Doc was a bald-headed uh, veteran of the military. He had been an Army Ranger, and anybody that knows the military, you know what about Green Berets and Army Ranger Special Forces are. He was one tough individual, a very tough dude older than me, uh, and, but we were both in martial arts in college, and uh, so we were, uh, we were, mm, we had con uh, martial arts contests, boxing and so forth, and so here's the old Klansman, and he let, he let it be known that he was definitely Klan, and he knew what my position was, so he was kind of like the leader of the Klan, and I was kind of whatever the leader of the Civil Rights Movement on the Huntington campus was, an all-white campus, and it was five, only five of us, basically, that were expelled or asked to leave school. Um, but anyway, one night, the Ku Klux Klan had a rally, a 38-foot cross they burned right outside the campus because five of us had gone to uh, Reverend Abernathy's church to hear Dr. King and meet John Lewis and so forth. And our professor had said we couldn't do that, and we said, no, we're going to go anyway. Church was surrounded, and uh, we, were, we were going to be arrested. Dr. King said, you're all going to be arrested. And I said, Dr. King, we need to escape. And he had already told us if we come to the meeting, we better be prepared to be arrested. So 
we knew that we might be arrested. But anyway, we did escape. We got back to campus, and we were all asked to resign from school. So the Klan burnt crosses around the dormitory that night, and then they had a huge rally about three days later. Now, what happened was that I knew that Doc was the leader of the Klan, and I knew there were a lot of other students that were Klan-minded. But when that uh, rally occurred, the Klan announced they were going to march on the campus and get the five students, the Huntington Five. Well, all of these Klansmen who were students, they all came to our dorm room. And they said, look, Zellner, uh, you're a son of a bitch, but you're our son of a bitch, and we're not going to let them come on this campus. We'll go fight them. So they wanted to go fight the Klan on our behalf. So we said, well, we'll go fight, but we're nonviolent. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, well, you be nonviolent. We're going to fight. <laughs> so there was all kinds of contradictions always. So, in fact, uh, the movie that uh, Spike Lee is making from my memoir starts out with this scene in Macomb, Mississippi, which incidentally happens to be where Doc is from. And it was my first demonstration. And so here's this old Klansman that were, I mean, a Klansman that were classmates of mine during this mob scene, he keeps shouting my name, Zellner, we'll kill you. So now I'm on his territory. He thinks I've organized this entire march. I mean, this stuff, you can't make this stuff up, you know? You know, um, we were having a conversation about race and responsibility, and uh, um, John, John Vassell said, you know, uh, race in America the conversation is is a conversation white people have to have. Oh yes, because yes. we're the ones that have created the racism. Brilliant and on his part to figure that, and we're the ones that set it up, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're the ones that set up the racist system for four hundred years already. So it's our responsibility to talk to each other about that reality, um, and you've been trying to do that. Mm -hmm. What are the effective steps? What are the, what's, what's the most effective way to start? Well, before you get to the effective steps, uh, the first thing is for white people to understand, white people of, of goodwill, is our responsibility to do anti-racism work. It's our responsibility to do that. And uh, I know for a fact that African Americans, black people, people of color, get tired of us white people coming to them and saying, could you explain this to us and what do we need to do? We have to have our own uh, anti-racism work. And also, uh, when I talk to students, I know that they're in the process of building a life philosophy, which involves also a political outlook. And one of the problems of progressives and liberals in this country is that we've never agreed that race is at the absolute center. All of, all of the issues that we're faced with, if you're not, not clear that race is at the center of that, whether you're dealing with women's issues, uh, LGBT issues, uh, immigrant issues, or anything else, race is at the very center of our political dilemma in this country. Always has been, still is, and will be a long time in the future. And most uh, liberals, progressives, and so forth are not clear on that. First of all, they think if they're going to work with poor and working class 
uh, white people, either especially in the South or in the North, that the last thing you want to talk about is race. No, the first thing you have to talk about is race. Now why is that? And the reason is that, um, that well, it's just simply that race is key. Um, and no person in this country of a white skin should ever hear themselves say, there's not a racist bone in my body. Because if we're, uh, our bones are full of racism. They were infused. Our history is infused with racism, you see. Well, you, cannot, you cannot escape it. I've been working in it for over 55 years now, and I still have racism. I, I would never say I'm not a racist, and there's not a racist bone in my body. And then you have people like Imus and uh, this uh, cook lady. Uh, who's the cook lady that got in trouble recently? Paula Dean. Paula Dean. Oh, there's not a racist bone in my body. Well, what is your record, you know? What is your record on women's rights? What is your record <clears throat> on race and so forth? So all of those things are absolutely key. To, and we have to do this work. And I don't know what the steps are, but I could explore that with where, you. Where is your racist bone? I mean, Pardon? I, where is your racist bone? I would, I would think of all white people in America uh, for you to say that. H how would you describe what you think is somewhere floating around inside you? Uh, well, there's a couple of obvious things, uh, to me at least. Um, as a person who is involved uh, almost, I mean, to the extent that I am involved, um, I have to work to have an integrated life. I have to plan my life in such a way that I, that I have an integrated life because all of the streams in, uh, in the nation are separate. You know, they may be in the same river, but they're different currents and so forth, and they're, they're separate. And if you don't make an absolute uh, effort at having an integrated life, uh, and I don't just mean black and white, but I mean, uh, you know, all males in this country should be avid feminists because we are in a paternalistic uh, tradition and we're just infused with that. So when I hear poetry and when I see uh, women, um, you know, blossoming uh, with the leadership that, that they've always had and, and exercised and now being recognized, I like that very much. And I have to constantly check my own consciousness about, uh, about women. Uh, also about uh, LGBT issues and so forth. We all had to even recently train ourselves in the nomenclature and uh, you know, how do you discuss it? How do you, uh, how do you deal with your feelings and everything? And that's an issue that was gloriously uh, uh, successful beyond all measure. But it's still one of the main things that the right wing uses, homophobia. You know, so all of these things are, are things that we have to constantly work on. So I have to look at my racist bones. And I have to look around the group and say, okay, who have I talked to, who have I not talked to, and why? And, you know, let me uh, clear this up and, you know, make sure that I uh, make touch with brothers and sisters that I need to. So we have to be conscious about that. You know, race entwined with economics, poverty. Um, you mentioned, so somebody's coming down here and think they're working with white, uh, poor people. They have to discuss race first. When you look at the larger structure in America, poverty, the dispor disproportionality, the widening gap, that's also entwined with race. 
So let's talk about first steps again, because those are so important to tease out, economics and race. Where do you start? Well, to me, as an organizer, the first step in dealing with this is to, um, is to have a conscious program. See, I'm working in North Carolina now. Uh, there's been a program there for eight or ten years of grassroots organizing led by the most creative uh, grassroots organizer and the most um, righteous uh, follower of, of Dr. Martin Luther King, and that's Reverend William Barber, and uh, he's the state president of uh, in North Carolina. And... Um, they have done an absolutely tremendous job of grassroots organizing. It's not recognized. It's been directly suppressed by, uh, by the national uh, civil rights leadership and also by the national administration. One of the uh, most normal, uh, most obvious progressive uh, administrations in history, and they're afraid of this kind of grassroots organizing. And even that organizing that is being extremely effective, that brings 80,000 people to the Raleigh, North Carolina on February the 8th, 2014, a year ago, a little over a year ago, the biggest demonstration in the history of the civil rights movement in the South. Nobody knows about it. It wasn't covered. It was only, uh, only covered by USA Today not the New York Times, not the Washington Post, not the LA Times, no other national newspaper covered it. Well, what's making them so uh, untouchable? What are they, what's their goals? <clears throat> well, uh, Reverend Barber is uh, the kind of leader that uh, follows, uh, I mean, more than anybody else, probably Ella Baker. Ella Baker is his great uh, example. And the SNCC model, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the, what happened here in Mississippi 50, 55 years ago is the model that they're, use, they're using there. But my point was about the white organizing was that even though we've been extremely successful in North Carolina and 60% of these, these uh, demonstrators are white Southerners now, 60%. Uh, number one is they have a lot of their demonstrations on Mondays, Moral Monday Movement. And a lot of working people can't make it there on Monday. So we have a lot of older people, a lot of, a, lot of, a tremendous number of white people my age and maybe 10 or 20 years younger. They said, I, I was there at the time of the Civil Rights Movement. I didn't do enough. Well, we live a long time now, so they're having a chance. We've had over 1,000 people arrested, civil disobedience. The next phase of the movement in North Carolina, and it's sweeping the country now, unbeknownst to the national media, is going to be jail no bail. So there's a whole new uh, uh, startup of the Poor People's Campaign using uh, Dr. King's model and uh, the kind of the model that we used in the GROW Project, grassroots organizing work, and that's going to sweep the country. And part of the whole thing is jail no bail. Don't just go to jail and make the witness and then bail right out. You stay in jail and you make that witness and you begin to make a real movement. But there's a, almost 200 organizations now in North Carolina that have been organized at the grassroots over six to eight years now. And uh, that's the model. But my point was, and when I first started, was that even that model, 
does not have a self-conscious, well-planned approach to poor and working-class white Southerners and Northerners, too, that we're almost the uh, same now all over the country now. The racism and, and, uh, and the institutional racism is getting worse, not better. Uh, economic situation of middle-class people, poor people, and working people is worse now than it was. School segregation, you look at almost any measure, in some ways we're worse off, certainly in income distribution. It's been sharply uh, redistributed upward. So even in North Carolina, the model for grassroots organizing in the country, we still don't have a self-conscious, well-planned approach to poor and working-class white Southerners because the last thing progressives and liberals who are white want to do is talk to people who are actual racist. All right, well, let me come back to that, but yeah. just give me a synopsis. What's, what are Moral Mondays and what's the goal of this <clears throat> movement? Okay, well, I can describe Moral Mondays and then everybody can go and uh, Google it. Uh, YouTube is full of it. If you put Zellner and, and uh, William Barber or Zellner and the mayor of Bellhaven, North Carolina, or any other thing like that, just put Moral Mondays and you'll get plenty of stuff. Moral Mondays is the condensation of the kind of grassroots organizing that Reverend Barber set out to do. He was the keynote speaker on the 50th anniversary of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, that occurred in Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, uh, North Carolina was the spawning of the student movement, for sure. Greensboro, North Carolina, February 1st, 1960. And anybody in academia would know that that's, that's like uh, 1776. Our, our, our date is uh, uh, February 1st, 1960, the beginning of lunch count of sit-ins. So uh, this is, uh, what's happening in North Carolina, and uh, the reason that it condensed into that soundbite, Moral Mondays, is that uh, once you, he, he began to get this immense coalition together of environmentalists, uh, 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 women organizers, uh, the huge contingent of LGBT uh, strugglers and so forth, once that all came together, then that what they did was they said, we have to all work on each other's issues. So if my main issue is voting rights, I may talk about uh, Planned Parenthood. I may talk about women's rights. Uh, the uh, LGBT people, they may not talk about gay issues and so forth. They may talk about uh, the need for uh, cleaning up the ash pits and stuff in the North Carolina. So everybody would say, instead of being in our silos and working on our issue, we're going to have fusion politics, and we're going to make the third reconstruction. So Reverend Barber recently at Riverside Church, in very much the same way that uh, uh, Dr. King, in 19, when he gave his Vietnam speech at Riverside Church, which was in 67, I think. It was almost a year to the day that he was murdered. Uh, Dr. King, uh, Reverend Barber, Dr. Barber has just done a, an address at uh, Riverside Church on the Third Reconstruction, which is really the blueprint for the kind of organizing that's going to transfer, transform this country. Part of the theory is that if you can change the South, and the South is the, one of the hardest nuts to change, They've learned to be very flexible in their racism. There's no individual racist left. It's just racist institutions that work very, very well without individual races. 
So if you can change the South, you can change the whole country. And if you can change the United States, which because of the right-wing takeover and the Tea Party shaking the rest of the dog, that little tail shaking the rest of the dog, the United States has become a reactionary force on the global scene. We're backwards in all, almost all. We're the most backward, advanced country that there ever was, period. In our jail pub, you, you name the, the statistic, we're the most backward. And we think that we're, and we put ourselves up as the most advanced. So these are the contradictions that we're going to be working on. All right, so, so here's some steps you just laid out. Mm -hmm. Acknowledge our own racism, educate ourselves, and make willful efforts to be reaching out across the different communities. So poor white Southerners. Here we are, uh, not poor Northwest liberals. You have a good progressive area. Yeah, you're in a, in a very progressive area. You should be very happy, but you have to give some leadership to the rest of the country as well. All right, so what does that look like? Do we come down here and, and go to church and say, I have come to talk to you about your racism? Well, <laughs> no, I hope, you have some, I hope you have some influence in the Democratic Party, and we've got to do something in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is self-destructing in front of our eyes. They don't have an electoral strategy, not past four, eight, maybe 12, 16 years. They, they can't possibly have an electoral strategy because they're alienating every demographic that they can possibly alienate. They've been captured by an extreme right wing that took 15 or 20 years, and that was the that was the overturn of the Second Reconstruction. If the Civil Rights Movement was the Second Reconstruction, the Koch brothers and the reaction that has now come to full fruition was the reaction and the overturn of the Second Reconstruction. So now we're in a period that looks like we're hurtling headlong into a right-wing direction and some form of corporate fascism. But those of us who are still optimistic say, that no, we're on the brink of a new progressive era. And this third reconstruction will be successful for several reasons. Number one is that there's real black power now. There's honest to goodness real black power in the urban centers, in the, in the, certainly in the Democratic Party. So there's a power that can be linked to by, uh, it, once we get the poor and working class uh, poor and working class, not just Southern, but United, nationwide, to stop voting against their own economic interests and simply vote on, on their economic interests, which is the same as teachers and uh, youth and old people and black people and so forth. That's gonna be a major change. In the South, we don't have to win uh, even 50% of the poor and working class white vote, we only have to win another six to 8% of it, which is doable with a real plan. Because we did it 50 years ago in the GROW project. Went right to the Ku Klux Klan areas, the strongest areas, and we started organizing unions there. And we were able to turn uh, uh, Klan members they showed me their arsenals. They took me through their arsenals. They gave me their history of terrible, terrible things they'd done. And um, M.O. McCarty in Laurel, Mississippi, 
was criticized one day by a fellow union member who happened to be a socialist and a Unitarian Universalist and said, you're a dirty Klansman. And he said, well, Orange, I was a Klansman. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm not even supposed to say it, but I was a Klansman. And he said, but I've always been a joiner. He said, every time I went to church, it was a Baptist church, they opened the doors of the church, I joined. I'm a member of the Baptist. Uh, if I went to the Methodist church, they opened the doors of the church, I joined. He said, I think I've joined just about every church I ever went to. <laughs> and he said, and I did join the Ku Klux Klan, but now I've joined the civil rights. <laughs>